Let's open our Bibles or navigate on your tablets over to Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 13. We're in the middle of a long narrative uh, and uh, we're parsing it up, how it makes sense to us and we quit in verse 12 of chapter 40 last week. We're gonna pick it up today in verse 13 and we're gonna read through chapter 41, verse 15. I always like to tell you exactly where we're going so that you'll have hope. The topic we're gonna find in that text is this, Governor Jedaliah of Judah ignores the warning that Ishmael is going to kill him. The title of our message, Kill Me Ishmael. When's the last time you read Moby Dick? Raise your hand, anybody? All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our morning. We are here, Lord, to come before you in worship, something, Lord, that uh, is so profound when we think about it, that we just come as we are because you're our great high priest. We bring no sacrifice but our own lives. You've made it open and easy for us, Lord, but at a great cost, at a great price, as you died on the cross and rose from the dead for our sins so that we might live forever. I pray that we would enjoy our fellowship with you today. Everything that you say to us, Lord, would encourage us to learn and grow and be strengthened in our walk with you, that we would be corrected in our righteousness, that we would be made firm in our doctrine, that we would be equipped, Lord, for every good and perfect work that you have before ordained that we should discover as your children. And Lord, if there are folks here that don't know you personally, never come to the cross and had their sins forgiven, they don't have an absolute hope of heaven, I pray, Lord, that today your spirit would show them Jesus and that they would be drawn uh, by your grace to salvation. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. You've probably heard of Stockholm Syndrome. It's the documented psychological phenomenon in which hostages express sympathy and empathy and have positive feelings towards their captors. Did you know that it's possible to experience something like that without being kidnapped? An expert in victimology writes and he says, Stockholm Syndrome can be seen as a form of traumatic bonding, which does not necessarily require a hostage scenario, but which describes strong emotional ties that develop between two persons where one person intermittently harasses, beats, threatens, abuses, or intimidates the other. I sincerely hope and pray that none of you has such a person in your life. If you do, we would urge you to deal with it Abuse is not godly, nor is submitting to abuse. But having said that, if you're a Christian, there is such a person in your life, one who wants to beat and abuse you, one who harasses and threatens and intimidates you. You know who it is, it's the devil. And although he's been defeated and has no power over you, if you're not very careful, you can nonetheless be taken captive by him to do his will. Don't take my word for it. Listen to what the Bible says. This is 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26. 
Paul the apostle writes and he says, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, listen, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Now the context of those verses is how to lovingly deal with folks who are being led astray by false teaching. For our purposes this morning, we note that the last phrase states that it is possible to be ensnared by the devil in one of his traps and be taken captive by him in such a way that you end up doing things that are consistent with his will rather than with God's will. Don't take this too far. It doesn't mean that you can be possessed by the devil or that you will somehow lose your salvation. As Dave Hunt says, you can't be taken captive by him at his will unless you are willing. Satan doesn't have the power to take captive anybody he wants, saved or unsaved. And so think of being taken captive in the sense of yielding yourself to the devil's influence and then behaving in a manner consistent with his character and methods rather than the character and methods of Jesus Christ. And it's crazy, but Christians who the devil is harassing, threatening, and intimidating, they sometimes start acting just like him in their dealings with others. What can we do to avoid being taken captive by the devil to do his will? Well, our text in Jeremiah gives us a glimpse of an Israelite who we would say was the devil's captive. As we look at his story, we're gonna be warned to recognize the danger we face and we're going to recoil at the potential for destruction should we ever give in to the devil's will. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you must recognize the danger of being taken captive by the devil to do his will. Number two, you must recoil at the destruction of being taken captive by the devil to do his will. In chapter 40, verses 13 through 16, we're gonna recognize the danger. Our story takes place as newly appointed governor Jedaliah is working to rebuild the nation of Judah. The Babylonians had come against Jerusalem and uh, against Judah and Jerusalem in a third and final siege. They had come over the wall, through the wall, broken down the wall, burned and destroyed and deported. And now they left a contingent of soldiers behind with mostly the poor of the land under the leadership of Governor Jedaliah, who was a, an Israelite. He's a great leader. He's got a solid plan that is definitely within the will of God. It's no surprise then that he would be immediately opposed by the enemy of God. And so verse 13, moreover, Johanan the son of Kareah and all the captains of the forces that were in the fields came to Jedaliah at Mizpah. They said to him, do you certainly know that Baalis, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to murder you? But Jedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, did not believe them. Ishmael was one of the Israeli generals, by the way. The Ammonites were next on Nebuchadnezzar's to-do list of nations to conquer. Uh, Babylon had risen to the, the preeminent world power at that time. Uh, They had started against the Ammonites once before but got distracted by Israel and came against Judah instead. And so the Ammonites were afraid that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come against them. If they could keep him busy with uprisings in Judah, then perhaps uh, he wouldn't come against them or at least it would be delayed. 
Satan doesn't appear as a character in this narrative, at least not directly. What we're going to see is a wicked rival king influence an Israelite to do his will in opposition to the will of God. It can therefore serve for us as a great illustration of what it means to be taken captive by the wicked rival king of this world, Satan, to do his will in opposition to the will of God. Now, verse 15 says, then Johanan, the son of Kareah, spoke secretly to Jedaliah in Mizpah, saying, let me go, please. I will kill Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he murder you so that all the Jews who are gathered to you would be scattered and the remnant in Judah perish? But Jedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, said to Johanan, the son of Kareah, you shall not do this thing, for you speak falsely concerning Ishmael. I don't know about you, but I like Johanan. He's my kind of guy. He's a loyalist and he's a pragmatist. And if I didn't know any better, I think he was Sicilian. <laughs> and so all the generals come and they say, look, every, we all know that Ishmael, who's a general himself, leading Israeli troops, they said, we all know that he's in with Baalus, the king of Ammon, he's gonna murder you. Uh, and Jedaliah officially says, no, I won't hear of it. And so Johanan thinks, well, he, he just, he needs a little help figuring this out. He doesn't want as an official act of his government to order the assassination or the seizure or whatever it is of, of this. It, it gets you off to a bad start. And so Johanan comes, you know, and he's secretly and he says, hey, I understand what's going on. You don't want to taint your record from the beginning. Let me handle this. I'll just murder the guy. And Jedaliah, though, he still won't hear of it. Sets down his foot and he says, no, I, I just don't believe it. Now, as to the morality of the suggestion that uh, Johanan murder Ishmael, I think we need to take a rain check on that. This was an unusual time, time of war. I could argue either way about whether he should or shouldn't murder uh, Ishmael. But in light of what happens in chapter 41, the point being made is that Jedaliah did not take seriously the danger of Ishmael opposing God's will in order to do the will of a rival king. We should take the devil seriously. It sounds funny, but I don't think we do. Satan is busy setting traps for you. He's a very good trapper, by the way. He has a lot of resources at his disposal, and he has time on his side, meaning that he can set a trap and wait years to spring it when it will do the most damage. All he requires is your willingness to be influenced by some wicked thought that goes unchallenged, or some root of bitterness that you allow to grow in your heart, or some misrepresentation of Jesus that you start to believe. What we're gonna talk about this morning basically comes down to this. Small errors, small sins, uh, small thoughts that are not taken captive to Christ, these are the ways that Satan begins to uh, get you willing to do his will and take you captive. The devil is defeated, but he's no less dangerous. For centuries, he has worked to defeat Jesus Christ. Now that the Lord has defeated him on the cross, Satan has turned his attention to destroying Christians. Theologian Lewis Berry Chafer wrote, and he said, the enmity of Satan is not only toward the person of God, but also toward every true child of God. Too much emphasis cannot be placed on this fact. Satan has no controversy or warfare with his own unregenerate people, but there is abundant scripture to prove that he makes unceasing effort effort to mar the life and service of believers. Never underestimate the devil's zeal to take you captive to do his will. Do not yield to his influences, not for a moment. If you do, 
Repent and return to the humility of serving the Lord. Maybe it will help if you see with your own eyes the kind of devastation that can be accomplished by one person being taken captive by the devil to do his will. And that's what we have in the uh, chapter 41, verses one through 15. We know next to nothing about Ishmael except that he was in the royal line of David. He might, therefore, have been king of Judah instead of Jedaliah, who was not in the royal line of David, who was an appointee of Nebuchadnezzar. It's perhaps enough to get you bitter and make you vulnerable to the influence of a wicked rival king, or perhaps it was just his patriotism and not wanting to submit to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Uh, Whatever it was, uh, even though, as we'll see, they had the clearly revealed word of God through Jeremiah, Ishmael started to think differently uh, and he was influenced by this rival king, the king of Ammon. Now it came to pass, verse one, in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family and of, of the officers of the kings, he came with 10 men to Jedaliah, the son of Ahiakim at Mizpah, and there they ate bread together in Mizpah, they feasted together. Then Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and the 10 men who were with him arose and struck Jedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, with the sword, They killed him whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Jews who were with him, that is with Jedaliah at Mizpah, and the Chaldeans who were found there men of war. And so Ishmael comes to murder Jedaliah. He takes his opportunity at a feast when everybody's guard is down. He finds that he has to kill some Jews who are also there as well and some Chaldean soldiers of the Babylonian Empire. And so whether this got bigger than he thought or not, uh, he doesn't just kill Jedaliah, he kills several individuals. One of the most chilling lines of dialogue in the Godfather movies is uttered by Michael Corleone as he is calmly contemplating how to murder a rival, and I think he's eating an orange. He says, if anything in this life is certain, if history has taught us anything, It's that you can kill anyone. That's the total philosophy that he lived by. And it's a great Ishmael philosophy. Let's just kill anybody that we need to kill in order to accomplish our purposes. Now you gotta wonder if Ishmael comforted himself by thinking that what he had done was for the greater good of Judah. Even though Jeremiah had been prophesying surrender to Babylon, I could see Ishmael and others thinking that resistance was their patriotic duty. To them, Jedaliah was a puppet ruler who should be deposed, not the rightful ruler to whom you should submit. And so Jeremiah for decades had been saying, guys, the jig is up. God's bringing the Babylonians. He's gonna use them to judge us for our sins of idolatry and and whatnot. We're gonna go into captivity for 70 years. The city is gonna be destroyed. The temple's gonna be burned down and you should surrender to the Babylonians to make it as easy as possible. That had happened. It was being fulfilled, but still Ishmael and others thought we're going to resist to the end. And and I believe, I, I think as patriotic individuals ourselves, you can see where you could convince yourself that resistance is the way to go. Uh, We need to overthrow this. We need to overcome this. Human beings have an amazing capacity for justifying disobedience to God. God's word can be as clear as crystal, but we can nevertheless imagine ways in which it doesn't apply, not in our special case. Many of you, probably all of you, 
have had somebody in your life, a Christian that you've known, who's gotten involved in sin, and you've gotten the courage to go to that individual and to confront them in their sin, say, hey, what you're doing right now is sin. God's word says this, and you're in sin. And, and then you think, wow, praise the Lord, they're gonna repent. And instead they say, maybe it's sin for you, but it's not sin in my case. Or I can see how you think it's sin, but it's not really sin uh, because of this, that, and the other. And they have some string of justifications in their mind about why what they're doing, although it seems to be sin, although it fits the definition of a sin in the Bible, a clear definition, I don't really see it that way in my case because there's extenuating circumstances. And so people do that all the time. Ishmael was doing that, and as he continued to push the boundaries, uh, he's gonna get himself in deeper and deeper trouble. It happened, uh, verse four, on the second day after he had killed Jedaliah, as yet no one knew it, certain men came from Shechem, from Shiloh, and from Samaria, 80 men with their beard shaved and their clothes torn, having cut themselves with offerings and incense in their hand to bring them to the house of the Lord. 80 sincere worshipers. They knew that Jerusalem was broken down. They knew the temple had been burned. To express their sorrow and grief, uh, they were coming with offerings. They had shaved their beards, which in their culture was a sign of shame and humility. Uh, they had torn their clothes. What's up with that? I, I don't know why, but I always, get, I always get stuck at this thing with uh, Jews tearing their clothes. How much wardrobe did they have, those people? <laughs> so much easier to be a worshiper today. I mean, you might be grieving today. Probably a lot of you are. There's a lot of terrible things that are happening to people all the time. But when you got out of your car in the parking lot, did, it was the first thing you thought of just ripping your shirt in half. Say, I want, to, I want Pastor Gene and the leaders of the church to see how, how much grief I'm in. Everybody's walking in with all disheveled. Did you shave your beard off? Did you cut yourself? That's what these guys did. They, you know, we talk about kids today cutting and stuff. These guys, they cut themselves and, and they're coming along like this with their clothes half off like zombies almost, you know, with their offerings. Sincere in their worship of the Lord. Be happy you don't live in the Old Testament times for this and for indoor plumbing, but... Uh, <laughs> And some other things too, like your iPad, of course, but anyway, and better coffee. Uh, but so they're coming, they're absolute. These are, the thing is, these are the most sincere worshipers you could imagine. This is, remember, who is it? Linus, he wants to have the most sincere pumpkin patch in all the world so that the great pumpkin will see his pumpkin patch and do whatever the great pumpkin does. These guys are the sincerest of sincere worshipers. Everything's broken down and they're going cut and shaved and, and torn up. But this is gonna be a problem for Ishmael because nobody knows that he has slaughtered the contingent of soldiers at Mizpah with a bunch of other Jews and Jedaliah. He can't afford for this to get out. So what's he gonna do? Well, verse six, now Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, went out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he went along. And it happened as he met them, he said to them, come to Jedaliah, the son of Ahiakim. That's exactly how he said it, by the way. <laughs> so it was when they came into the midst of the city that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, killed them and cast them into the midst of a pit, he and the men who were with him. Take a long look at Ishmael. He was a hero general who had led troops fighting against Babylon. He is still out in the field risking his life when the city was breached. He wasn't a terrorist. He wasn't a criminal. 
I'm sure if you would have told him that he was going to kill 70 innocent, sincere worshipers who were coming to make their offering at the ruined temple, he would have punched you in the face. He would have said, I'm doing this for people like that, for their good, so that we can restore the proper worship of Jehovah. But he found himself in a tough spot. He'd killed Jedaliah and these other men and he couldn't let word get out. Overnight, he went from a heralded general to an assassin to a mass murderer. This is mass murder. Sin, I was gonna, when I first wrote this, I wrote sin is a slippery slope. You've heard that expression before, right? And and there's a sense in which it's true. The idea is that once you sin, you just start to slide. But I've seen too many movies where the hero is sliding down, you know, and just before he gets to the end of the slide, you know, uh, down this this cliff, he grabs some kind of an outcropping and he's saved and he's hanging there 10,000 feet above the ground, you know, and if uh, just another millisecond and he would have been gone. And I think when we think in our minds, well, sin is a slippery slope, we kind of think that there's gonna be some outcropping there at the end. That even if I get in a little bit deeper than I want to and I start to slip, I can halt my slide. Sin is more like a sheer cliff. We just walk in it until we fall over and then there's nothing really to catch us until we splat on the ground. And it's not like the Roadrunner cartoons where the coyote just gets up and you know, shakes himself off. And so he can get blown up again. Sin is a free fall headed towards a splattering. The devil sets traps. Traps use bait. Bait is something that at least at first seems desirable. I don't do much fishing. Usually once a year up at family camp. Uh, It's free uh, for one thing. But I do know a little bit about fishing. I know that fish like things like worms and crickets. I never understood salmon eggs because... There's not too many salmon in the freshwater lakes up here, you know, so maybe it's a delicacy, like maybe it's the caviar of fish food if you're a fish. But there's some things, you know, that fish seem to like, and there's other things you wouldn't think to use as bait. You know, mac and cheese. Well, maybe the cheese. BLT. So can you see, you know how fishermen go, hey, what are you using over there? I got a BLT on the end of my line. That's probably not gonna work. Piece of plastic. No, it's not gonna work. And so the devil, he, he always baits his traps with something that's very desirable. It doesn't seem like you're head first going off of a cliff at first. But, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like one of those situations in a cartoon where you keep walking and then you look down and you think, huh, the cliff was back there. And then all of a sudden, bam, you fall down. That's more what sin is like. And so verse eight, but 10 men were found among them who said to Ishmael, don't kill us, for we have treasures of wheat, barley, oil, and honey in the field. So he desisted and did not kill them among their brethren. Now the pit into which Ishmael had cast all the dead bodies of the men whom he had slain because of Jedaliah was the same one Asa the king had made for fear of Basha the king of Israel. Ishmael the son of Nethaniah filled it with the slain. Then Ishmael carried away captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, king's daughters and all the people who remained in Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan the captain of the guard had committed to Jedaliah the son of Ahiakim. And Ishmael the son of Nethaniah carried them away captive and departed to go over to the Ammonites. And so now Ishmael adds kidnapping to his criminal profile. Being compared to Asa, Asa was an earlier king of Judah who started well but finished poorly. And so that's what we're seeing with Ishmael. Started well, hero general, fighting 
uh, for the side of right quickly falling into disarray. Now I said earlier that though the devil isn't mentioned anywhere in this account, he's pretty easy to recognize. In John 10.10, Jesus warned us that Satan is like a thief who comes to rob and steal and destroy. Other verses describe him as a murderer from the beginning. And so these are all the things that Ishmael is guilty of, robbing, stealing, destroying, murdering, The devil's fingerprints are all over the events in this chapter if he has fingerprints. You think angels have fingerprints? How many of you think angels have fingerprints? Raise your hand. I don't know, I think they have feather prints. (laughs) Verse 11. But when Johanan the son of Korea and all the captains of the forces that were with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael son of Nethaniah had done, they took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael the son of Nethaniah and they found him by the great pool that is Gibeon. Israelite versus Israelite. It's a terrible thing when there is infighting among the people of God. It's a victory for the devil for sure. Don't get me wrong, Ishmael must be opposed. In sixth century Judah, that meant hand-to-hand combat. That means he had to be killed. Our verses in 2 Timothy we read earlier about being taken captive tell us that today, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Interesting, that word for quarrel just happens to mean hand-to-hand combat. We are to oppose those who are taken captive, who are doing the will of the devil with the truth of God's word as servants in humility and with gentleness. We don't back down, we can't, but we don't meet them on their level. We need to take the spiritual high ground. We need to remain in the will of God. Verse 13, so it was when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan the son of Korea and all the captains of the forces who were with him that they were glad. Then all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back. They went to Johanan the son of Korea, but Ishmael the son of Nethaniah escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. This isn't the best outcome, but it's certainly a better one than we might have expected. It puts us on notice that there will always be Ishmaels out there eager to do the will of the rival king to be taken captive, as it were, by the devil to do his will. Just make sure it's not you. Do you see the destruction caused by yielding to the will of the devil? You do. I do. But we can still sometimes, if not most of the time, fail to apply this to ourselves. When I was growing up, I can remember several educational programs aimed at keeping kids on the right path. One of them you might remember if you're old enough was the film Reefer Madness, which was shown in my school. Released in 1936, it's described this way, an American propaganda exploitation film revolving around the melodramatic events that ensue when high school students are lured by pushers to try marijuana from a hit and run accident to manslaughter to suicide to attempted rape and descent into madness. I knew somebody would chuckle. I don't know about you, but my friends and I chuckled at that documentary back then too when they were trying to warn us. We never for a moment entertained the slightest thought that we could end up like the strung out addicts depicted in the film, even though we were high while we were watching the film. There's an innate sense that we have that it's not gonna be me. It's always somebody else. In the 70s, there was another documentary film, Scared Straight. Do you remember Scared Straight? 
they took some juvenile delinquents and they just kind of left them with some inmates in a federal penitentiary, or no, state penitentiary. Federal, they would have been playing golf. But, uh, <laughs> and these guys, they just hammered these kids. They, they used all kinds of you know, foul language. I mean, they threatened them. The idea was that you're gonna end up in here and you're not gonna like it. Uh, and they were scaring them to, to go straight. Uh, people laugh at that too. Parents try that strategy all the time. Here's how you're gonna look, you know. They just showed them pictures of me when I was a kid, you know, and stuff. But anyway, um, this is what's gonna happen to you. And that's, that's what we have here in this chapter, you understand. God is saying, this is what's gonna happen here. You are Ishmael if you yield to the devil. And we agree with that. We absolutely agree with that, but we have to recognize that we have a sense that, yeah, but I'm not gonna do that. I would never let it get that far. That's the problem thought right there, that I would never let it get that far. What? Well, this dabbling that I'm, this, this root of bitterness that I'm kind of nurturing because of what this other person did to me. This lust that I'm kind of nurturing, I'd never let it get any farther than this. And the devil, I mean, that's bait. You understand, that's bait, and he's reeling you in all the time until finally you look down and there's nothing underneath you anymore because you're way off the cliff. That's what's happening in this chapter. We yield to the devil in some area, we step into his snare off the cliff thinking we have set the boundaries of how far we will go. While we are laughing at reefer madness, the devil is laughing at us. The heralded general who would be king went from assassin to mass murderer to kidnapper in just a couple of days. It's a warning we should heed without laughter. Now the good news is that Satan has already been defeated, I should mention that. His schemes and strategies are mostly known to us. They can be discovered as we read about him in the Bible. He doesn't have too much new in his repertoire. He might use new things, but he does them the same way. Uh, He's still doing what he did in the Garden of Eden because it works for him. Uh, You know, he entices people and it works. He's easily recognized, by the way, whenever there is pride or strife or envy or greed, whenever there is gossip or slander or backbiting, whenever there is sin in general, well, that's the devil influencing someone. In James 4, verse seven, you read, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will what? Flee from you. Albert Barnes says, while you yield to God in all things, you are to yield to the devil in none. You're to resist and oppose him in whatever way he may approach you, whether by allurements, by flattering promises, by the fascinations of the world, by temptations, or even by threats. And so you and I need not be subject to traumatic bonding with Satan. Barnes goes on to say, the true way of meeting the devil is by direct resistance rather than by argument, by steadfastly refusing to yield in the slightest degree rather than by a belief that we can return to virtue when we have gone a certain distance in complying with his demands. No one is safe who yields in the least to the suggestions of the tempter. There is no one who is not safe if he does not yield. Now I'm not suggesting we become paranoid although I do like the quote, it's not paranoia if there really is someone out to get you. 
And in our case, there really is someone out to get you, to get me, it's the devil. But he has been defeated and all we need to do is resist him. And so it's, it's not paranoia, it's just caution. It's just the warning, don't engage with him. Don't take a step in his direction thinking that you can return to virtue anytime you want. Because that first step leads to a second step until you are running headlong into destruction. Jesus prayed for us with regard to the devil. The night before he was crucified, Jesus was thinking about you and I. He said, I don't pray, Father, that you should take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, I have to believe that every prayer that Jesus prayed is answered by his Father. And so God keeps us from the evil one. We just need to keep ourselves from yielding to him. Like Dave Hunt said earlier, a quote I said earlier, uh, the devil can't take captive anyone who is not willing to be taken captive. In the 1980s cop drama, Hill Street Blues, the tough but caring sergeant, knowing the multitude of dangers his officers faced on a daily basis, always ended his squad room briefings by saying the same thing. It's good advice for us as well. He would always say, let's be careful out there. Amen?